Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday the 1st of March 2023. First of all, we'd like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaherna country. We're also asking you to influence your local politicians with the message that we really need to change our energy policies and move to renewable energy sources to mitigate the effects of climate change. And each month, we love bringing you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, our friend, toxicologist and amateur astronomer, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, brings you his monthly sky guide with all the essential observational highlights for telescopers, astrophotographers, and naked eye observers. Each month, Ian also includes Ian's Tangent, where he takes us on a short journey of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we bring you an exclusive and in-depth interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, particle physicist, radio telescope engineer, data scientist or space scientist. So right now, we're going to zoom over to Adelaide to get this month's Sky Guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Happy birthday. And can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the month of March? Thank you for your birthday wishes. And the month of March is going to bring us some more interesting astronomical events. As for February, the planetary action is still largely in the evening skies. Venus and Mars will be prominent and bright all this month. However, Jupiter, which has been our companion for many, many months, is finally lost in the twilight by about mid-month. As always, I'll start off with the moon. Yep. So the full moon is March the 7th. The last quarter moon is March the 15th. March the 22nd is the new moon. And March 29th is the first quarter moon. So that gives you uh, an idea of when the skies will be bright and, and when the skies will be dark and really good for looking for our faint fuzzies. Moon is at apogee when it's first from the Earth on March the 4th, and at perigee when it's closest to the Earth on February the 20th. The Earth is at solstice on the 21st for us in the Southern Hemisphere. That's the autumnal solstice. March is also our end of summer for Australia. But our autumn evening skies will be heralded by bright Venus climbing a little bit higher in the evening sky. That won't look so much higher because of the low angle of the ecliptic mean that never really gets very high, although it's very prominent in uh, nauti- at nautical twilight. That's an hour after sunset. And by the end of the month, Venus is just visible when the sky is fully dark. Yep. Now, like last month, Venus has three encounters, which are quite interesting. The standout is on the second, where Venus and Jupiter are very close, just half a finger apart. That's 0.5 degrees. Now, if you've been watching Venus and Jupiter this week, end uh, because of the, the rambulations of uh, Venus, Jupiter, and the Moon, you'll be noticing that Venus and Jupiter have been getting closer and closer. 
and this comes to the prominence on the second when they're at their closest and they'll look very beautiful together. They'll look nice in binoculars, but if you've got a telescope, it's going to be very hard to look view telescopically because they're so close to the horizon unless you've got a, a low horizon and a portable telescope for low travel so you can point telescope very low to the horizon you won't be able to to see it properly but it will look nice and binoculars and to the unaided eye of course so if you, if you get it a little bit before nautical twilight when you've got some really good twilight colors the pair close together in the, in the in twilight colors will look really really nice excellent so on the 24th, Venus will be about one degree from the crescent moon. That's about a finger width. And making a very fine binocular sight. Uh, if you've got a wide field uh, telescope, it'll also look very nice. But again, the whole thing, because it's relatively low to horizon, getting a telescope that will angle down uh, that far to get Venus and the moon in would be quite difficult. 31st, Venus is just one and a half degrees from Uranus. So that, that you should be able to see the pair in binoculars quite nicely. Excellent. So that's Venus is now very, very prominent in the early evening twilight. Yep. Mars is continuing to be uh, bright, although it's well past opposition and is now rapidly fading. It's still quite uh, easily visible. Uh, at the start of the month, Mars is making a line with Aldebaran and the bright star Beta Tauri, also known as El Nath. But it's also forming a, 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 a triangle with both Beta and Zeta Tauri, so the, the tips of the horns of the middle ball. Yep. Mars is also shrinking quite a bit. This is probably the last month where it'll be a decent telescopic object. You'll be, basically you'll be able to see it as a, as a, a reddish disk but you, unless you've got really serious telescopes, you won't be able to see anything but detail on it at this stage. And it's got a couple of interesting encounters. So on the 28th, Mars is about four degrees from the waxing moon. And it's very obvious it's the brightest object near the moon. Yeah. And they'll both fit into low-power binocular fields or at even mid-power binocular fields. Then by the end of the month, Mars is close to the open cluster M35. Now, M35 is a, is a nice little cluster. If you're under dark sky conditions, it's a worthwhile sight. Not huge, but very nice and looks quite nice in binoculars. Unfortunately, the waxing moon is still fairly close, so it'll make the fainter stars of the cluster hard uh, to see, but the sight of Mars and the cluster together in binoculars will be quite nice. Okay. Jupiter, as I said, Jupiter's been quite prominent. On the second, Jupiter and Venus, of course, close together. I've already uh, talked about them in that great detail, but Jupiter keeps sinking towards the horizon, and by about mid-month, it'll be very close to the horizon, deep in the twilight, and very and, uh, difficult to see, but probably you can uh, get a hold of it from binoculars. Yep. Okay, so that, that was uh, our evening sky. Let's move on to the morning sky. 
Mercury's been quite prominent in the morning sky over, the, over February. It's now falling back towards the Houston horizon, and it's now lost to view early in the month. And, and it's also going to reappear in the evening twilight late in the month. But on the 3rd, Saturn, which has been lurking close to the sun for, for all of February, is about one degree from Mercury. Unfortunately, the pair are deep in the twilight and not really uh, very bright. So you'll need a, a level unobstructed horizon and binoculars to see really see the pair at their best. Some places to even see the pair at all. Then after that, uh, Mercury's effectively lost the view. Saturn, of course, will be lurking in the twilight, but it's really only visible without binocular aid from about mid-March. And on the 20th, Saturn is close to the thin crescent moon. Again, it's low in the morning twilight, but, but by the 20th, it should be sufficiently high enough an hour before sunrise that you can see Saturn and the, the crescent moon without too much difficulty. Nice. Yeah. Now, uh, taking uh, into account uh, the face of the moon, one of the nicest sights, uh, sights of this month uh, later in the month when the moon's gone, is the emu. Now, I talked about the emu before. The emu is a dark constellation, unlike the uh, constellations which are delineated by bright stars that dominate the Northern Hemisphere. The dark uh, constellations are ones that are delineated by rifts and dust clouds in the Milky Way or around near the Milky Way. So... There's several southern hemisphere dark constellations. The most famous one from Australia is the emu. Yep. The emu consists of the head of the emu is the coal sacks, the dark nebula under the Southern Cross. Uh, then the neck of the emu is a, a series of dark rifts in the uh, Milky Way underneath the coal sack. Finally finishing up to the curl of the tail of uh, Scorpius, which uh, is the fringe of feathers uh, around the emu. In March, relatively late at night, well after 10 o'clock, towards the end of the month, but once you've seen the emu, you uh, can never not see it. Exactly. And it can, it can even be, be seen in quite suburban locations. Very good. And, yeah. and of course, the classical constellations of uh, Orion the Hunter is thinking at the same time its nemesis, the scorpion, is uh, is rising. Very good. So that's the morning sky, Ian. Do you have a tangent for us for the month of March? Indeed, I do have a tangent for you for the month of March. So the theme of the, the March tangent is finding things. Now, it's about 10 years ago that the Sheldonist meteor from outer space shattered windows, rocked buildings in Russia, leaving a trail of destruction and fragments in its wake. Just shy of 10 years to the day, asteroid 2023 CX1 disintegrated brilliantly over Normandy, also leaving a trail of fragments. So far, about 12 fragments have been found. The composition is still not entirely clear from what I've been following. But in line with this theme, finding things, 
2023 CX1 was found in a routine search just under seven hours before it impacted. And it's also the seventh asteroid discovered before impact where the impact was predicted. And to continue the uh, number seven theme, it's also seven birds of paradise long. In terms of uh, corgis uh, weighing as much as two baby elephants, I can't tell you how much it weighed in terms of baby elephants. <laughs> as well as record, the recorded entry and breakup, as I said, they managed to find at this latest time 12 fragments of the asteroid. And immediately after this, uh, in the next five days, there were another four bright fireballs reported with meteorites recovered from three, the 2023 CX-1 uh, also falls in Italy and Texas. Uh, this appears to be a coincidence with none of these actually being associated with 2023 CX-1. Yep. Now, speaking of finding rocks, 12 new moons have been found for Jupiter, bringing its total to 92. Now, nine of these 12 new moons are retrograde moons, moons that are orbiting backwards, so to speak. These are all smaller than eight kilometres long. Again, I can't tell you how much that uh, means in terms of corgis or baby elephants. Uh, and three are prograde moons that are orbiting the same direction as the Galilean moons. The prograde moons are orbiting between the Galilean moons, the uh, famous four, and the retrograde moons, which are far out. Retrograde moons are probably all captured asteroids, whereas the prograde moons may or may not be fragments of moons or moons which form with the condensation of the uh, dust disk around Jupiter that end up being the uh, Galilean moons. Now, speaking of moons, moons might help us find the elusive planet nine. Planet nine, the hypothetical planet that uh, is, uh, has been uh, proposed to explain the weird orbits of the outer dwarf planets, um, if it exists, it is dark and cold and is uh, very hard to find with our current telescopes. But the moons might make things easier. Now, how are you saying it? Because if planet nine is cold and dark, surely the moons, which are going to be much smaller, will be cold and dark as well. However, if the moon is uh, a large moon like those of the large moons of uh, Neptune and Uranus, and remember, Planet Nine is probably somewhere in the order of uh, Neptune's size, I think. Yep. They be, can be warmer than the Planet Nine due to tidal heating. Now, this won't be as dramatic as the tidal heating that makes Io a volcano uh, paradise, but they'll be easy to find with thermal radio uh, in the thermal radio spectrum with telescopes like ALMA or perhaps the TANSTAR networks than uh, planet nine itself. So by looking for the warm spot that uh, would indicate a moon in the areas where we think planet nine may lurk, we might be able to pick up the glow from the, the tidal heating glow from the moon rather than planet nine itself. Yep. Now, speaking of thermal spectra, the JWST has been used to detect, detect the rings of the asteroid Cherry Loco. Now, this is a central object in the Kuiper belt, and we've known it's had rings since 2013. But the JWST thermal sensitivity 
allowed the rings, uh, it has two rings. He studied in more detail so the ring dimmed the light from a very faint star passing behind them. So they're able to uh, get the, uh, the uh, dimming very, very, very carefully monitored. Now, speaking of rings, the raw planet Kribalar has also has a ring system. Again, this has also been known for a while, since about 2018. But recently, the exoplanet hunter satellite Cheops was able to follow the occultation of another star with high precision and, and add high quality data to our understanding of Kribalar's ring system. Now, uh, the rings of asteroids or cubic belt objects are largely uh, a mystery. But QLR's ring system is even more of a mystery than some because it's, it's well outside the roach limit. So two of the ways we think that rings could occur is by having something slam into a cubic object and spray material off. Or a companion uh, satellite gets too close into the roach limit and breaks up. But QLR's ring system is well outside the roach uh, limit. So how it got there is that the ring system got there is uh, a bit of a mystery. Yep. Uh, speaking of mysteries, the weird elongated um, fast-spinning dwarf planet Hyamea also has a ring system. Uh, and how did that get there? Could it be that the hot, uh, the fragments of Hyamea uh, spun off because of its high rotation, got spun into a, uh, a ring system? Uh, is Hyomia spinning rapidly because something impacted it and uh, sprayed off bits that became a ring system? We just don't know. But that's that, that's one of the beauty of these things. As we keep on looking for, looking at them, we'll probably find answers to these. Uh, and thus ends my uh, little tangent on finding things. So many questions, Ian. So many questions. So many questions. Uh, and every time we look at them, we, we, we seem to get more more and more questions rather than more and more answers. Uh, that's the way we like it. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astro Blog Musgrave. There's a lot of things for us to see in the month of March. There is definitely a lot of things for us to see in the month, month of March. We had a lot of questions to ponder. It'll all be quite interesting. Excellent. Well, thanks, Ian. Good night, mate. Thank you very much. Uh, good night to you. And we'll um, we'll catch you around and we'll see you in a month's time. Fantastic. Night, mate. <laughs> good night, mate. Catch you later. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored. And in two weeks, we have a truly wonderful interview for you. Mia Walker is an amazing engineer and project officer working on the MWA, the Murchison Widefield Array, situated in very remote Western Australian desert and scrubland. It's the precursor instrument for the low-frequency component of the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array. And she tells us how she links up 4,000 dipole antennas to the supercomputers at the Pawsey Centre, hundreds of kilometres away. You'll love Mia and her engineering stories. 
Tune in in two weeks, and till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.